between Ireland have decided that as of midnight, Wednesday, August 31st, there will be a complete cessation of military operations. All our units have been instructed accordingly. The IRA has called a halt to its 25-year campaign of terrorism. We're celebrating that we've put our guns down and we've stopped all the law. Our national flag has flown. <laughs> Suddenly an IRA ceasefire, followed up by a loyalist ceasefire. And for the first time in a generation, people are saying, look, there are new possibilities here. And I'm thinking, I've come back just to be in the most exciting period of the politics of this place ever possibly. This is just, I mean, how astute my decision was. <laughs> You're carried away by this sort of, those sorts of delusions, really. But at the time, you know, I felt vindicated. Or maybe I was looking to be vindicated but I certainly did feel vindicated. In the heady days of summer 94, Norman Porter returned to live in his native Belfast. He left a successful and happy life in Australia to come back to the uncertainties of that city, and he came back a unionist who had changed from the loyalist certainties of his youth. But Belfast had changed too, and this was no happy homecoming for Norman Porter. I came back here thinking I'm coming home, strong sense of belonging. And in some ways that isn't true. I mean, in some ways I only feel as though I half belong and the other half of me is, is just unavoidably foreign or alien because Northern Ireland has probably always was, but certainly since the onset of the Troubles and so on has increasingly become a tight wee place full of tight wee cliques where people too often treat other people with deep suspicion, where it's very hard to be accepted. This is the house I was born and grew up in, number nine, Clara Crescent in Loyalist East Belfast. Whoa! I spent the first nine years of my life here and as we passed this little entry, as we call them in Belfast, I used to play football down there. <laughs> Miserable looking really, isn't it? But it? It seemed like a stadium when I was about six. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was a hero <laughs> playing in front of the world stage and I look at it <laughs> oh well no I really enjoyed it living here the first nine years were in terms of being content with life were the happiest years I spent in Belfast because I identified with this area you know I just happened to know everyone for the you know in the surrounding streets um, Played football, played in the streets. Grew up playing playing outside in the streets. And the highlight was clicking wood for the bonfire every 11th of July. And it was built round the corner from here. And great pride taken on who would have the biggest biggest bonfire in this neighbourhood. And we always had to protect it. 
people come and steal your wood. It's disgusting how it, this is what happened. So was, you became fiercely parochial about your bonfire, which was yours and, say, the surrounding four or five streets. You had this common bonfire, and for about a month up to then, everyone else was the enemy. You know, there was you didn't tolerate them. If you saw them coming up your street, you suspected they were after your wood, and you sounded the alarm. So there was this sense of togetherness, defending the old bonfire. <laughs> it was good fun, at least when you were about eight or nine. <laughs> Only the, the odd hyper-zealot flew Union Jacks in those streets. I think my dad was one of them. <laughs> but, uh, they, they, there are more now, and there was certainly no graffiti now. They walk along the end of the street and see UDA on the wall and UFF. Now, that was just unknown to me growing up in the street all those years ago, so... The advent of graffiti and the proliferation of flags is, has all come since I grew up here. For 50 years, the Unionists have misruled the state. They have gerrymandered and discriminated against the Catholics. They have done nothing about the high unemployment and bad housing, which affect the Protestants as well. They have bullied and jailed their opponents under the Special Powers Act and have used their thuggish police and B-men to beat up or shoot, shoot them when the opposition gets serious. At the same time... I come from a very staunch unionist background. My father was a well-known orange man and had been an independent unionist MP at Stormont during the 1950s. Prior to that, he'd been closely associated with Ian Paisley. I certainly identified very much with that expression of unionism, so for me to be a true unionist was to be a full-blooded Protestant, and so a Protestant Ulster was my idea of what being a proper unionist meant. It's just a piece of window dressing to calm things down a bit without risking any real changes. Above all, he is not anxious to Orange music was just there. It didn't come and go. It had a, a stability to it. it. It took you back to where you came from and it was carrying you forward in the present and on into the future. And in that sense, it, it evoked feelings that the Beatles or the Stones or whoever weren't capable of evoking in me. I never recall any trouble at the 12th. So it seemed to me, unless I'm terribly mistaken, trouble-free, it was just this carnival atmosphere, as far as I recall, where I could walk along to the field, which was at Finicky in those days, following a band or a number of bands that uh, seemed to be the loudest and most inclined to kick the Pope over Dolly's prey. <laughs> This is bliss. <laughs> we shall overcome. 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 We shall over
actually have to know Catholics personally. You knew what Catholicism stood for, both religiously and politically. And therefore, it was something that was to be feared and kept in its place. And keeping Catholicism in its place, if that meant you know, that, that Catholics didn't enjoy the same entitlements as Protestants, well, so be it. There was this sense that they didn't really deserve them because they couldn't be trusted, if you like, with you know, the full benefits of citizenship. I mean, the full benefits of citizenship were only due to those who swore on swerving allegiance to Northern Ireland and as Catholics clearly didn't, what were they complaining about? You know, the idea was if they didn't like Northern Ireland, they, could, they were quite at liberty to move south. If that's what they wanted, why didn't they go and enjoy it and, and <laughs> rollick it or, or whatever? It was that sort of idea. Ulster is in need of reforms. I believe that Ulster has nothing to be ashamed of. And we're not here to apologize for our province. We're here to defend our province and to defend the liberties that our province has. present situation in the city of Belfast cannot be allowed to continue. I just remember hearing on the news that rioting had broken out and I thought, well, I've got to be there. Ordinary life is being paralysed. Irresponsible broadcasts stir up new hatred. Above all, the many barricades are strangling the whole community. Ryden seemed at the time to be an exciting, adventurous way of spending a, a summer evening in Belfast. Uh, it was just one of those things. It was you never quite knew what was going to happen. So there was that sense of the unexpected. It was like you were living on your nerves. There was that whole dimension to it, that adrenaline rush that you get because there's a sense of danger and the unexpected. And for certain sorts of people, that has an appeal. For others, of course, it wouldn't have any appeal at all. For sensible people, they would run them out from that. But for complete idiots like I was at the time, this was hugely attractive. The sense of danger was exacerbated in my case because, as I say, the riots I mostly went to were in the Shankle. And I lived in East Belfast and I had to walk home and there were no buses. And I remember on a few of those occasions all the streetlights had been put out too, so it was walking home in darkness. And I can remember two occasions, two different occasions. One was when I, I was walking, it was just, I had just come over, just come over the Queen's Bridge and was walking past the street, which... I'm not sure it exists anymore. It was called Memel Street. And the Sirocco works were beside it. I remember looking up and I saw two snipers on a roof and I was the only person in the street and I didn't know who they were, whether they were Protestants from Memel Street or whether they were Catholics from Short Strand, which was close by. So, so that was a bit unnerving, you know. 
this deserted street at night, you look up and see two snipers and there's no one there but you. So I didn't enjoy that, I'd have to say, but <laughs> I remember that happening. On another occasion, I remember they'd been riding up the Newtonards Road. I was trying to walk home and they wouldn't, the British soldiers you know, threw me about and wouldn't let me through, even though I said I lived up there, they wouldn't let me through threaten me and so on and they I remember then to get home I cut through Short Strand which is the one category of East Belfast to go home that way and I find that pretty unnerving I'd never been in that Short Strand area in my life past the, the bus but I'd never actually been in the middle of it so I walked after a night of riding I remember walking through Short Strand again late at night by myself and not being quite sure whether I should sprint or just dander casually. <laughs> I think I compromised and did something in between. But I was very relieved to get out of that that area. I mean, the little things like that, I remember as though they were yesterday. The troops' arrival has defused a very tense situation, but only in the words of many because the troops have replaced the hated B-specials. I don't like British troops, but they're better than the, they're better than the specials. Ulster loyalists will not tolerate the sacking of the B-Special Force. Ladies and gentlemen, please. I'm here to try and get a job done. I appreciate that both sides have got problems, but I have problems too. Now please let us get the thing... Why do we need them? We can sort this out ourselves. If you just leave, let the B-Specials loose, <laughs> this thing will be over in a week at the most. Now, I would say that there, there are people, certainly of my parents' generation, who would still probably believe that. I remember a ride, I think it was Dover Street, I hope I'm right about this, it was one of those streets in the Lower Shankill, I'm pretty sure it was Dover Street, where I first encountered the British Army. And I remember there was a crowd at the, the Shankill end of Dover Street, and the British Army arrived at the the falls end of, of Dover Street and we're, we're shouting through megaphones, get off the street or we'll, f- or we'll fire. And at the time, there was a, a lot of the, the crowd at the Shankill end were preoccupying themselves with looting what I presume had been once a Catholic shop. And they were very preoccupied with looting it for all it, for all it was worth. And so they were disregarding the British Army threats of getting off the street or will fire as they sped across to the shop and <laughs> carrying armfuls and passing things out to various members of their family. <laughs> I remember that very vividly. But, but again, it was, that, it was that strange idea that here were the, the loyal people, the loyal Protestants of Ulster at the Shankly road end of Dover Street being threatened by the British Army and seemed most mysterious. Like the world was being turned upside down. What was possibly going on here? Didn't make sense. Only they're getting freaking paid for nothing. That's what they're here for. They're getting paid for nothing. You know what the army care for? You know what the army care for? A good team. Nothing else. And they're for them. Not for the Protestants. You know the cause of our whole trouble. The Northern Ireland. The good union of the Bolster had it hot in the night. When they took away our defence, the British, the government that pulled the water, and Northern Ireland left them do it. And the bloody good Protestants of Ulster said that and their butters and left them do it. 
Early in 1970, my family decided to leave Belfast. My mother was worried about my increasing involvement in the troubles. My father, I believe, was increasingly disillusioned with the politics of the place. And so the decision was reached to emigrate. The only question was to where. The decision was made to emigrate to Australia. The day I left Belfast, we caught the, the boat to Liverpool and then went down to Southampton and caught a boat to Australia. But the bit where I caught the, the Liverpool boat in, in the evening, I recall I went off by myself for most of the day. And I just walked the streets and sort of said goodbye to Belfast in my own peculiar way, which was by walking around all the streets I had the fondest recollections of or the, the strongest identifications with. And that wasn't just East Belfast. I, mean, I remember I wandered up, up the Shankill and up York Street and all over the place, and also up South Belfast too. So I sort of did this walking tour of Belfast after my own fashion. It was a pleasant day, you know. It was, it was a nice... I mean, the weather was fine, and it was one of those feelings like, why would you want to leave here? You know, that, that, I mean, that added to the agony of it, you know, as I walked around all these familiar streets and identifying with them. And I was just thinking, why would I leave Belfast? This is bizarre that I'd actually come to this. It's, this is really crazy. There's something wrong with my life that I'm even going to go through with this. One of the weirdest experiences of my life was standing on the deck of the Liverpool boat, watching Belfast vanish before my eyes. To my right, seeing the cranes at Harlden Wolf recede into the distance, and to my left, watching the cave hill fade away. I was full of remorse, and yet a fear and an anticipation of the future and wondering would I ever return to this place and not having a clue about the answer. Totally authentic. This is Belfast, look at that. The industrial heartland. The old yellow cranes. H and W. Familiar landmark in Belfast in many ways. Certainly, what you notice when you sail out. <laughs> so, the docks was always regarded as a bit of a colourful area where life was lived in the raw and where you had the, the sort of tensions of the city in many ways were exemplified in the docks area because it wasn't exclusively Protestant or Catholic but as I say intermingled um, but now no one lives here that's all gone and we don't have that sort of intermingling anymore so the docks are cut off from the rest of life so you don't have the intermingling of life at the docks with life in the neighbouring working class area 
And on the other hand, secondly, you don't have the intermingling of working-class Protestants and Catholics, which you had in the docks. I mean. So in that sense, this whole area, perhaps more than any other in Belfast, signifies the greatest transformation of the place that I've noticed since my return. I think this captures it all, really. The County Armagh Grand Orange Lodge is calling on all Orange brethren throughout the province to muster urgently at Drumcree Parish Church to show their solidarity with their Portadown brethren. Off has been going on now for some 20 hours. Many are pointing the finger at Ian Paisley, who told Marchers last night that they would like to parade down the Abbey Road. The traditional route, as we expect to be again. Consent is and will remain paramount in our policy. It's the democratic right and the safeguard of the people of Northern Ireland. No proposals for the future would be workable let alone successful, without the consent and the active support of the I joined the Ulster Unionist Party shortly after the Loyalist ceasefire. I joined the Ulster Unionist Party because... I reckon like this, the Ulster Unionist Party is the largest political party in Northern Ireland. If, there's going to, if the politics of this place are going to change, they can't... <laughs> The Ulster Unionist Party has to be part of that change. I mean, the idea that you could change this place without them being part of it struck me as being a bit odd. What did you find? That there are a few people more naive on this earth than myself. <laughs> Clearly, I could only have believed that because I hadn't been living here. <laughs> that had I asked around, I would have been told that I was way off the mark. And I, I read an article in the Belfast Telegraph by by a prominent unionist on the decommissioning line. And I was so angry, I remember it distinctly, that I threw the paper across the room and at that point decided I was going to see if I could go to the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation in Dublin. And I picked up a phone and phoned up um, Dublin Castle and asked to speak to someone. <laughs> so it was, the, it was that decommissioning issue that I found. I found it. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not staying quiet through all this. You know, we've had this reaction to the framework documents, we've had drum cray, we're having this hyper-emphasis on decommissioning. I mean, I'm just not going to sit here and be quiet anymore. I've had enough. Welcome, Dr Norman Porter, uh, who is a member of the Ulster Unionist Council, who is appearing in an individual capacity uh, to put forward a unionist viewpoint to the forum... By going to the forum, sure, I more or less uh, guaranteed that I would be forever suspect in unionist party circles. That I'd broken ranks, that I'd be treated like a leper, a pariah, which all, all of which turned out to be true, yes. But I didn't care. I, I'm going to ask him just to introduce his paper and then we will go into the questions and discussion section. Section, and I don't want to waste any more time talking myself, so I'll just ask Dr Porter to start. Thank you very much. Well, I should start, Madam Chairperson, by thanking you very much for that extraordinarily warm welcome. Mm. And I also should say... I didn't give up what I had in Australia. 
to come back here and play parochial, silly bugger unionist politics. Like, it would have been bizarre, berserk in my own estimation if I'd just told a line I absolutely disagreed with. What mattered to me was the future of this society. And I thought, if I go to the forum, I will present a if, if they accept me, I will go and I will say what I believe. I'll present a case that I hope is reasonable and that, at the very least, invites people to disagree with it, invites dialogue with all comers. And to me, that seemed more important at the time to say, here's someone who's a member of the Unionist Party who's prepared to go to Dublin Castle and debate with anyone who's there, including Sinn Féin, no problem. To me, that was far more important than playing stupid unionist politics. I decided to write this book, Rethinking Unionism, principally out of a sense of frustration. I was dissatisfied with not just the conduct of unionist politics, but also the thought that lay behind unionist politics. I wanted to sort out once and for all, as it were, exactly what I thought about unionism and how I could continue to define myself as a unionist, given my dissatisfaction with much that passed for the name. Therefore, I wrote it. That book, Rethinking Unionism, won many accolades for Norman Porter, including the joint award of the Ewart Biggs Memorial Prize and favourable reviews from the Taoiseach's special adviser, Martin Manser. But that was south of the border. Closer to Belfast, the book was publicly criticised by Ulster Unionist leader David Trimble. Here's a Vatican Assembly. He devotes a considerable portion of his annual speech to a party conference about a book which he describes as the author is a member of the Unionist Party who has written a book. My, my name is unmentioned. The name of the book is unmentioned. I mean, it's a gig. I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you a lot. It seems to me it tells you a lot. <laughs> I think the problem is critics of unionism from within the fold have been treated with suspicion for as long as anyone can remember. Unionists are used to dealing with critics from outside the fold. If you're a member of the fold, you're not meant to be critical, at least not in public. And so there's a huge discomfort in dealing with someone, particularly someone like me, who comes from impeccable unionist stock. I mean, I have, I have a rare unionist pedigree due to my father. <laughs> and for someone from my background to criticise the thought and practice of received unionist wisdom is hard for a lot of people to stomach. This isn't playing the game. This isn't what a good unionist is meant to do. It, at the end of the day, it comes down to what you prioritise and why you prioritise it. My, my argument is that for too long, unionists have prioritised the union. 
And for too long, nationalists have prioritised the, the aspiration for a united Ireland. As a consequence, what's get, what gets lost is attending to the immediate, the here and now, such as living in Belfast or living in Derry, living in Northern Ireland. What, what gets sacrificed is Northern Ireland for the sake of something else, be it the rest of Britain or be it the rest of Ireland. And that seems to me the most awful political tragedy of the lot, that for the sake of these overarching political aspirations, we actually sacrifice what ought to matter most, namely how we live together politically and socially in this society here and now. I think our priorities are upside down and need redefining all around. Now, thousands of people have died. We have sectarian practices. We have a situation where many Protestants never mix in any half-meaningful way with Catholics and vice versa. It's an absurdity. That's the most striking feature of the politics of Northern Ireland is in many respects absurdity. It's like we shoot ourselves, shoot ourselves in the foot for reasons that are less than compelling. I think the reasons are shabby, they're awful because they're tied to overarching aspirations or concepts that exist principally in the imagination. I've nothing against the imagination, but we ought to be wary of it <laughs> when we get carried away to the point of allowing everyday life and the control of our own affairs to be screwed up so <laughs> outrageously. They haven't gone away, you know. Who have suffered, who are the bigger people in Northern Ireland, the victims who have suffered in this country are saying, get on. I don't know if anybody can imagine what you go through when your own child is killed, of whatever age. And it made me realise how many other parents have gone through that awful experience and how many more might go through it. I've been here just over three years for uh, most of that time I didn't make a living. <laughs> in other words, I was unemployed for almost three years. And it's only in the last couple of months that that has changed. Norman Porter, who comes from an impeccable and indeed hardline unionist pedigree, is a stimulating and engaging iconoclast who has made a valuable contribution to the debate on the future of unionism, and indeed I'm sure Merriman is the place for iconoclasts. He courageously came on a personal basis to give evidence to the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation. He is a strong advocate of engagement in political dialogue. He said he had no difficulty in accepting that he is both British and Irish. His book is a serious critique of different styles of unionism, of a sectarian-based or cultural unionism, of the liberal or equal citizenship unionism of Bob McCartney, and he instead puts forward a civic unionism. Hopefully, Norman Porter is an important harbinger of a new spirit in unionism. 
Certainly after the book had come out, I was getting invitations to, I suppose, you could say quite high-powered events. So I could... I have this ridiculous situation where I'd be... uh, Treated as some quite important person. And then the next day I would go and sign on the dole. And it's that contradiction that was hard to take because, I mean, that made it sharper and more acute. And it's very hard to describe what that felt like, <laughs> except to say it was the pit. <laughs> Tell Norman, Simon, tell Norman what I said about the, um, when asking me for the soap. Well, I'm sad for the sake of my family, because I, I think it's been unfair on them, and that makes me sad, and that, that, that's a form of sadness that it's sometimes hard to cope with. I mean, feeling responsible for other people's misery is not a pleasant experience. I'm not sure I know what the answer to that is. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, that's good. But he reckons there's a drop of water coming in through the flue. That's why we're getting that rust mark at the back. That was harder for me to cope with, I mean, given that I'm primarily responsible for their being here. So when they would come with reports of, you know, just in an everyday sense, experience of sectarianism and the fact that they find it hard to cope with and were upset by it, I thought, well, this is crazy. I mean, I mean it's not fair on them that they have to go through this. I mean, they're not from here. They don't, they don't choose to be here. In fact, they choose not to be here, to be perfectly honest. Um, so, yeah, that's very hard to deal with at that personal level. Hmm. She bought leopard skin bikini and leopard skin hot pants. She was going to wear with her high heels, which is apparently the classic thing that you would wear if you were going to a bathroom. I mean, I felt that I had to contribute in whatever way I could to the affairs of this society. And that if I, if I didn't do that, I think I would have been restless and, and again, haunted for the, rest of, you know, for the rest of my life. So it was something I had to do. So in that sense, I'm happy I came home, yes. And is Belfast still home? Aye. In its own peculiar way, Belfast still has this hold on me and still is home. (laughs) Carry him out. It was perhaps inevitable that Sinn Féin's arrival at these talks would be greeted by the total absence of any unionist representatives. Nevertheless, Gerry Adams said today represented the start of an opportunity that unionists would soon grasp. We do think that this could be the beginning of the end of conflict on this island. It's a political will is there to build agreement, and we certainly have that will. On the unionists, if they're not here today, they'll be here tomorrow, or the day after, or the day after. And the sooner they're here, the better for everyone. We have no illusions about the character of Sinn Féin. We have not invited them to the table, but we're not afraid of them, and we're not going to run away. We are not here to negotiate with Sinn Féin, but to confront them and to expose their fascist character. We're now trying to achieve something better for our children. We intend to do that. And in being brief, I say merely, let the debate begin. I think if these talks fail, 
prospects are so miserable <laughs> that everyone's mind ought to be concentrated on making them succeed. And in that sense, talking about end game may be quite appropriate, or at least end game in terms of an agreement that might last for at least another generation. <laughs> you know, that'll do. At the moment, that'll do. We'll be all terrifically grateful for that. <laughs> Just pause and think for a moment where this violent road we have been following lately is bound to lead. continue in this state, and we've had too many of the last already. I have seen many pictures of your children playing round the barricades. To many of them, all this is now just a game. But as they grow up without hope, without work, without a future, will they not curse us in time to come? My feelings towards Belfast are cloyed, you know. They're not pure. They're not pure. They're, they're sort of mixed up. And, you know, sometimes I just get pissed off with the place. You know, I get really seriously pissed off with it. <laughs> Even walking around the street, I want to shout at some bloody villa. You <laughs> see, you, you make me puke. <laughs> you end up talking to bricks. Oh. <laughs> That's Belfast. <laughs> All slogans run like wet mascara down gable ends. The terraces were jilted looks, deserted in the morning, swollen-eyed. But last night's rain has rinsed the streets of last night's vomit, last night's blood. Where to, sir? asks the taxi man. Home, I say. Where's that? Home's here, I say. For good. <laughs> 